Now we're going to be introduced in the third chapter here to a third class. And we find here a correct conception of God. That is what clarifies Christian service. Now, we have this third class. We want to introduce them to you. Paul says, "...and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ." Now, here is the third class. He's the unnatural Christian, by the way, or the unnatural man. We have the natural man, and probably we should call the next one the supernatural man. Then we have the unnatural. He's carnal Christian. He's a babe in Christ. Now, the first part of this epistle, as we said at the beginning, Paul will talk about carnalities. The last part, he'll talk about spiritualities. And I think Paul got very tired of talking about carnalities because time you get to the 12th chapter, he seems to heave a sigh of relief. And all of a sudden, he says, Now, I want to talk to you about something else. Now, concerning spiritualities, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. That's the way he begins the 12th chapter. Now, the carnal Christian is also a man who hasn't grown up. That, I think, is evident. And he is one who lacks a spiritual discernment, not because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, but actually because of the fact that he is never growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And again, it's his relationship to the Word of God. That is the important thing. This unnatural, carnal Christian, they're babes in Christ. They have an ability but no desire. The babe has a potential to become a learned man, but he has to start out drinking milk. And Paul says, I've fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. So Paul's not going to talk to them in this section about spiritualities. He will talk to them about that which is carnalities. And here is where the church, the present-day church, is living today. Now, how can you identify the carnal Christian? Well, it's a Christian who is using the weak arm of the flesh, carnal methods are the methods that he uses to attain spiritual goals. They are the ones in the church that say, let's have a banquet. They are the ones that say, let's put on a musical and introduce some of this modern music. They are carnal Christians, and the word carnal is sarcocos, means fleshly. And the word carnal comes from the Latin and the French carne, which means sensual. It's that which appeals to the senses, not the spirit. And that's the reason that you have so much of that in the church today, that appeals to the senses and not to the spirit at all. And that's the reason that most of these programs today, they're not doing anything. They get a crowd in, but they're not going anyplace, you see. Now, the word carnival comes from this word carne flesh, and val, or valet, means farewell, O flesh. Now, a carnival was something that they had before Lent. 
And they called it a carnival because during Lent it would be farewell to the flesh. And the Mardi Gras down in New Orleans and other places where they have it, it means Fat Tuesday. That means you gorge and gormadize the flesh and you get drunk and sick and everything and you satisfy and satiate the flesh and then you'll be willing to do without things during Lent. And Paul spoke of folk like this, whose God is their belly. And that's crude, you say. You bet it's crude. But the thing it speaks about is more crude than that. And there are a lot of folk that this would be certainly an apt description of them. In other words, let the flesh go. Or as the song has it, do what comes naturally. Now, somebody says, well, I'm not a carnal Christian. I don't believe in a carnival. I even get sick on a Ferris wheel. I'm a separated Christian. Now, what is the mark of carnality? Will you notice this? Verse 3 now, chapter 3. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Now, my friend, carnality hasn't anything to do with riding on a roller coaster. Churches do have carnivals, too, by the way. Liberal churches do, and some others do. But what is a carnal Christian? And where do you see the evidence of it? Wherever you have strife and divisions, you've got a carnival going on. And in many of our fundamental churches, you see the divisions and the gossip and the strife and the bitterness and the hatred that's demonstrated my friend, that's when the flesh is on display, when you lose your temper, and they say, well, I believe in being frank. No, you just believe in being mean, that's all. And you can turn an organization in a church into a carnival. Why, you can turn a prayer meeting into a carnival, and a missionary society into a carnival, and a Sunday school class, when you gossip, when you stir up strife and envying and division. Now, may I say to you that you may not look at TV, you may not go here and there, but are you really a carnal Christian? Now, listen, Paul's not through. For while one saith, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Paulus, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who is Paulus? They are ministers by whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. Paul says, I have planted... Paulus watered, but God gave the increase. Both of us are workmen for God. Paul was the one that was the missionary. He opened up new territory. Paulus came along and helped meetings and preached and built up the saints. But both of them are God's servants. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. You see, friends, it's not the preacher, it's not the teacher, it's whether God is using him. And if God is using him, then don't give him any credit for it at all. Give God the praise and the glory. Now, will you notice? Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And we need to recognize that today, that there are other workmen that God's using they may be doing it a little bit differently. That's one reason that I don't think any of you ever heard me go on a tirade 
on this radio against any individual. Because I recognize that many men, they don't do it my way, and I very frankly don't like that method they use. But God's using them. And I know a lot of men God's using. And they don't do it my way, friends. But we're workmen together with God. Now, verse 9, "...for we are laborers together with God." You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. We're all working together in this tremendous enterprise. Verse 10, "...according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon." Now, the important thing today is to get out the Word of God and the gospel that can save man. And then man can build on that foundation. Now, the foundation's been put down. It's put down 1,900 years ago. You and I can't put it down today. All we can do is to point to that foundation which is Jesus Christ. For other foundation can no man lay, and that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now, are you building on him or not? That's the important thing. This is where good works come in. When you come to Christ, you come with no works. You come bringing nothing to receive everything. And you're put on the rock, which is Christ. Now, on that, you can build. Listen to Paul. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, Paul says that you can build on the foundation with six different kinds of material, gold and silver and precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble. Well, the first three, fire won't hurt them. Actually, fire purifies gold and silver and precious stone. But wood, hay, and stubble, fire certainly gets rid of all three of those. Now, you can build on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Now, if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. That is, is he building with gold, silver, and precious stone? Now, I'm of the opinion that about us today, there are many wonderful saints of God. The thrilling thing to me about this radio is that it reaches people in all classes and conditions. And I've been able to meet folk, some of them personally, some by letter, that God is using in a marvelous way, and they're building with gold. Now, as you well know, a little piece of gold just doesn't stand out. Everybody can't see it, and only God probably knows that that's gold. But you know a haystack. I know traveling across Kansas years ago, you could see a haystack look to me like 20 miles away. And there are a lot of folk building today a haystack. And everybody hears about what they're doing. Well, it's a haystack, and it's going to be tested someday, and then there won't be any haystack, because fire will be put to it. And the same thing will be true today of wood, hay, and stubble. Now, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But does that mean he loses his salvation? No. Now, if his work abides, 
he'll receive a reward. Now, if it goes up in smoke, he'll suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. The man will be saved because the important thing, are you on the foundation of your trust in Christ? Now, friends, what are you building today? What kind of material are you using? Now, if you're building a gold, it won't be very impressive. And I tell you, stubble and an old haystack really will show up on the horizon, but it's going up in smoke. I like to put it like this. There are going to be some people in heaven. They're going to be there, but they're going to smell like they were bought at a fire sale because everything they ever did will go up in smoke. They'll not receive a reward. This has to do with rewards. The service of God, you see. Now, if you're a carnal Christian, I assume what Paul is saying, you can't expect a reward because you have not, you have not been rightly related to God through the Word of God. Now, if you'll notice, the carnal Christian is one that does not know the Word of God. Here's the way you tell all three, whether he's rightly related to the Word of God. The natural man says it's foolishness. The spiritual man discerns it. The unnatural man says, oh, well, let's have a banquet and not a Bible study. And let's listen to music and not listen to the teaching of the Word of God. That's the way you tell the carnal Christian today, friends. Now he says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, the child of God is the temple of the Holy Spirit today. And we're going to talk about that later, because Paul's going to bring that up again. But our very bodies belong to him, you see. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. And unfortunately today, most of our seminaries are trying to make intellectual preachers. And very few of them are intellectual, by the way. I've listened to some of them. May I say to you that the important thing is to give out the Word of God. Oh, if I could only get that over to some of these smart alecky young fellows today in seminary. Now, I have the privilege of speaking in many seminaries. And I want to say to you that I have met quite a few of the boys who want to be intellectual. Or if they could only learn, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it's written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Now, listen to this. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death are things present or things to come. All are yours. You're Christ. Christ is God's. Oh, how wonderful today. And so instead of being in a little narrow group and say, oh, I like this teacher or I like this doctrine, my friend, all of them belong to me. And you want to know something? The reason I get along with the Pentecostal brethren is because I know they belong to God, you see. Whoa, my friend, they belong to me too. And I hope I belong to them. Oh, how wonderful it is today if we can meet around the person of Christ on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. How important that is, my friend. Now we come to the fourth chapter here of 1 Corinthians. 
And we have here the last chapter in which Paul is dealing with the divisions and the party spirit that was in the church in Corinth. And in this chapter, he speaks of the conditions of Christ's servants. And that is what should constrain Christian conduct. And will you note here how he begins? He says, "...let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ." and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, let me pause there for just a moment in that very wonderful verse. Actually, we are all ministers of Christ. Every believer is a minister of Christ. I don't care who you are. And one of the reasons today that I make that statement is that It's so easy for somebody in the church to say, well, he's my minister. Well, I want to be very kind, but I want to be rather firm. I'm not your minister. I trust I'm the minister of Christ. I'm responsible to him. And therefore, you have no right to sit in judgment on others, especially those that at least think they're doing the will of God, because actually the ministers stand before a higher court than you and than I am. Now, Paul is going to mention three courts here that all of us have to appear before. Every one of you have to go before three courts, and your case is appealed from one to the other, by the way. Now, will you notice that he also says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward is one who had charge of giving out the things that were in the house, the food, for instance, the clothes, and that sort of thing. Now, a minister today, in that sense is one that should dispense the Word of God. You remember the Lord Jesus gave the mystery parables. And by the way, we have here for the third time a reference to the mystery. Here it is, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Now let's identify those mysteries. The mysteries are those things that had not been revealed before. And the mysteries are those things that cannot be understood by the natural man. He does not understand it. Only the Spirit of God can take the things of Christ and show them unto us. And that's the mystery. And it's the gospel here, and it is actually the Word of God. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. And we dispense that. Now, in the mystery parable discourse... In Matthew 13, our Lord concluded it by saying, Do you understand these things? Well, they said they did. I don't know whether they did or not. I don't think they did at the time. But he did not say they didn't, nor did he say he did. But he did say this. He said, A householder, a steward, brings forth from his treasure things both new and old. Now, that's what today a steward should be doing bringing forth from the Word of God things new and things old. When anyone used to say to me, well, I've heard that before. 
what you preached on today. Well, I always say that I'm a steward that's to bring forth things both new and old. So today, I brought forth a little of the old. I'm sorry that you didn't like it, but that's my business. I'm to bring forth things both new and old. Stewards of the mysteries of God. How wonderful. And I can't think of any calling any higher than that. But actually now here, all of us really are ministers of Christ. You're a preacher, whether you know it or not. And don't get angry with me. There was a man that lived down from the church here in Pasadena when I was pastor here. And this man was a habitual drunkard. He was an alcoholic, a real sot. And he lived with his mother. And his mother, a wonderful Christian, wanted me to talk with him. He's a grown man. And so one day I saw him staggering down the street. So I just detoured him into my study. Didn't have much difficulty there. And he sat down. I told him what a sorry fellow he was. He agreed with every bit of it. And then I said to him, I said, did you know you're a preacher? He stood up. He says, don't you call me that. He says, I'll hit you. <laughs> and do you know that fellow, he didn't mind being called a drunkard or an alcoholic, but he sure didn't want to be called a preacher. Well, all of us are preachers. And I said to him, we preach by our lives, some message. You are saying to the world, those around you, you're saying something by your life. You can't help it. I live my life into you, you live your life into me. It's just that way. We have that kind of influence. Therefore, we're all ministers of Christ. And if we're believers, what kind of a message are we giving? Now, the important thing about a steward is not that he'd be eloquent or that he might not have many gifts, but moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And it took me a long time to learn that in the church. But I believe that's the most important thing of all, is to be faithful. Oh, how many are going to be rewarded someday, not because they did some great thing or that they had some great gift, but what they did and how they served, they were faithful. Faithfulness, that a man be found faithful. And I learned over the years as a pastor in a church, that you always had a few. They were the faithful, faithful few. You could depend on them. You could rest on them. You knew where they stood. Now, he goes on to say, listen now to Paul, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Now, that may seem to be a rather difficult verse, or these two verses, but actually they're not. What we have here are the three courts that all of us have to appear before. And the reason that you have no right to sit in judgment on me, and I have no right to sit in judgment on you, is because... You're going to stand before a higher court, and I am too. Now, the first court are others, the opinion of others. Notice what he says. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, the opinion of others. Phillips, in his, and I don't want to call it a translation, 
I do not think it's a good translation. I think it's an excellent interpretation. And here's a good interpretation, verse 3. But as a matter of fact, it matters very little to me what you or any man thinks of me. And that's a good interpretation of it. It's a striking statement, and it sounds like Paul is antisocial. But Paul was not callous or contemptuous of the opinion of others. It does not mean that he did not value the judgment of others. Paul was not immune to the expression and estimation of those about him. He defended his apostleship with great feeling when it was challenged by others. And he was always hurt by false rumors. Right here in this very chapter, he mentions that. You find here, he speaks in verse 11, "...even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst, naked, buffeted, no certain dwelling place, and labor, working with our hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat." We are made as the filth of the world and are of the offscouring of all things under this day. You see, Paul was very sensitive to the opinion of others. But Paul was not swayed by what others thought. Actually, his life was not directed by others. They were not at the steering wheel of his life. He did not listen to the backseat driver. Now, whether we like it or not, we all stand before the judgment seat of others. It's just something that you and I cannot avoid. And yet, it's practiced too much in this country. It was Abraham Lincoln that said, public opinion in this country is everything. That's, I think, true, and unfortunately, it is true. And we find here that there's a danger to defer to the opinion of others, yield to the criticisms of our enemies, surrender to them. Many court favor and popularity of the crowd. That's what the politicians do. We referred to one last time. Some will surrender principles and honor and reputation. And it was Milton who said, the last infirmity of a noble mind is the love of fame. And that is the thing that today that a great many go after. Horace Greeley, remember the editor of New York Sun, said, fame is a vapor, popularity an accident, riches take wings, those who cheer today will curse tomorrow, only one thing endures, that's character. And again, we find that someone else has said the trouble with most of us is that we would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. And that, of course, I'm afraid is true also. Now, will you notice that Paul was swayed but never changed by the opinion of others? So he says here, it's a very small thing that I should be judged to you or of man's judgment. Then he makes this statement, yea, I judge not mine own self. Now, the court that's a little higher than the opinion of others is another court. It's oneself. And that's conscience. That's a higher court, by the way. The court of one's conscience. Now, is conscience a safe guide? Well, Paul says it's not. It's not an accurate guide. We're to be led of the Spirit. We've already had the age of conscience in the past, and it ended in a flood. The Christian should have an enlightened conscience. And when it rebukes us and tells us we're wrong, we should hearken to it and obey it. 
And when it approves our easygoing ways, our appeals to our vanity, and flatters us, we should beware of it. All of us stand or fall before this court, though. Was it Shakespeare who said, To thine own self be true? And as the night follows the day, thou canst not be false to any man. And I think it was Longfellow that put it like this, Not in the clamor of the crowded street, not in the shouts and plaudits of the throng, but in ourselves are triumph and defeat. And this is something today that an honest man will not be influenced and guided by others, but what he thinks is right. It's a brave formula. It's a noble rule. Yet Paul said he didn't follow it. Paul refused to pass final judgment on himself. And again, if I may use Phillips as just an interpretation, he says, I don't even value my opinion of myself, but that doesn't justify me before God. It wasn't that he knew something against himself. On the contrary, he says he knew nothing against himself, but that didn't clear him because it's characteristic of human nature We are harsh on others, lenient on ourselves. That was David's problem, you remember. He could see the evil in someone else, but not in himself. Well, when others engage in idle talk and gossip, do we? Are we telling the truth and are we honest? When others hold to some opinion and are contentious, do we have the courage of our convictions? When others cause divisions and are troublemakers, are we standing for the right? When others forsake God's house and are backslidden, do we have a good excuse? You know, we're not apt to be severe upon ourselves. We always like to cast ourselves in a leading role, and it's generally distorted. We do not stand or fall before ourselves, because God may reverse the decision of this court. And there is another court, by the way, There is that court of others. There is the court of oneself. And then there is the court of the one and only master, the Bema of Christ. And will you notice what he says here, verse 4, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified? But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Now he says, I'm going to stand someday before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to talk about that in the second epistle in the fifth chapter. And we'll wait till we get there to go into it. But each one of us will appear. So then, each one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what's going to be judged there? Well, not our sins, because as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins He remembers them no more, and the sins are under the blood. Well, we're going to be judged as stewards. Our stewardship will be under inspection. And our physical possessions, our bodies, our material resources, our giving, all of these things are going to be judged, you see. These are the things that are to be brought up, and it's a pretty important office to be a steward today. After all, we own nothing. As we said before, all things are Christ's, and we belong to him, and we're in partnership with him. And it's a wonderful thing that Paul says here as he closed this third chapter, as we saw last time, or time before last, I guess it was, 
All things are ours. Paul is ours, and Paulus is ours. Well, are you a Calvinist? Well, Calvin belongs to me, and so does John Wesley. And the world, I do not mean organized society, the secular world, but this world I live in, I can enjoy its scenery, its beauty, the mountains, the trees, and the ocean, and life. But death is ours. Very well, Dr. Parker says, death is yours. It belongs to you. Death is not to master you. You're going to master it. Death's yours. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Things present. You belong to Christ and you belong to me. And things to come, the pathway into the future, the highway markers are up, the foundations have been washed out. So what? May I say, things to come. All of these things are ours how wonderful it is. And I'm going to stand before him someday. I should live in the light of that. Now listen to Paul. Therefore, verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. He's the one. When you sit in judgment on someone else, you're taking the Lord's place, you see. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. I remember someone came to me several years ago and said that a certain individual was criticizing me. I said, what is he saying? And he told me. Oh, I said, that's all right. And so I started to walk away. And the fellow says, aren't you going to do something about it? I said, no. I said, if that's all he knows, I know more than he does. And if that's the best he can do, I really know something about myself. Now, the hidden works of darkness are going to be brought out in the light of the presence of Christ. That's the reason today we should be very careful how we live. And then he makes this remarkable statement, Then shall every man have praise of God. I believe that every saint of God that he's going to find something to praise us for. Did you notice in the seven churches of Asia, Mind, he commended all the churches with exception of one, which I don't think is his church anyway. It's just an organization, the church of Laodicea. But he had something good to say about all of them. He also had words of condemnation, but also word of commendation. And we all have praise of God. There was a dear little lady in a church years ago, that always had something good to say about everybody, and especially the preacher. And one day they had a visiting preacher, and he preached the most miserable sermon anybody ever listened to. And people sat there wondering, what in the world will a dear little lady say about this sermon today? And they all gathered around. And when she went out, she smiled and shook hands with the preacher, and she says, Oh, pastor, you had a wonderful text today. Well, may I say you can find something to praise them for. Then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. Paul says, I'm just using this as an illustration for you. Paul and Apollos, we're friends. We belong to Christ. Christ belongs to us. And each one's exercising his gift. How wonderful that is, that ye might learn in us not to think of man above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? 
And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? You have a gift today, and some of you have wonderful gifts. Maybe you're a musician. You have many things to boast about. God gave it to you. You're not the originator of it at all. We ought to thank God for our gifts, you see, and not have anything to boast about. We haven't. Now he says, now you're full, now you're rich. You've reigned as kings without us, and I would to God you did reign. He said, I wish Christ had come so we could reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath sent forth us the apostles last, as it were, appointed to death, doomed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to man." great deal could be said about this verse. The apostles, oh, that great martyr period of the church, set before the world as a spectacle. Not only to the world, but to angels and to men. And I think that means the church today. Other men have labored, friends. We've entered into their labors. Now, Paul says what he'd gone through in order that Actually, that you and I might have this epistle and be enjoying it right now, and I trust we're enjoying it. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong, you're honorable, but we are despised. Then he goes on, as I read a moment ago, the position that he took. You and I can't dream of what this great apostle suffered in order to get the gospel of Christ out. And my, how he was affected. He evangelized Asia Minor, friends. We're told there in, in the province of Asia that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, heard the word of God. And he goes on to say that he was the missionary that led them to the Lord. Though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. It's wonderful, friends, to be the spiritual father of someone that you've led to Christ. Now he says, verse 17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, another one of his converts, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere and in every church. Now some are puffed up, though I'd not come to you. But he says, I'm going to come to you shortly, and we'll know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. He says, I don't care about your talk. I want to know whether there's power in your life. For the kingdom of God is not in word, it's power. But will ye, shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? And their attitude and action will determine that. Now, friends, we've come to another division it's not one of the two major divisions of the epistle, but actually it's a very important division. And it's concerning the conditions in the Corinthian church. And now we have here concerning scandals in the Corinthian church. That's beginning here at chapter 5, and it goes through chapter 6. Now here it has to do with impurity. And in the next chapter... Chapter 6, it has to do with lawsuits among members. Now, these are very practical questions and problems because, very frankly, these are the 
questions that come up today. And these are the questions that are asked today. And the church in Corinth and the present-day church are very similar, which means that we are living in a day of carnality, even as far as the church is concerned. Now, this chapter is quite a remarkable chapter, by the way. Here we have this statement made. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now, this is the case that was up before this church. And this is not gossip. The word commonly here should be translated and could be very easily. It is reported actually and factually. This is not something that was just a rumor going around. This was common knowledge. It is reported actually and factually that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now, in verse 2 he says, And ye are puffed up, are you inflated, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now, that's very strong language, you say, and it certainly is. It's dealing with a very grievous sin. Now, actually what was happening in the Corinthian church, they were compromising with this evil, and they were compromising in a very definite way. Now, there's certain things that we need to recognize here and certain things that they should deal with. Remember, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18:15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he'll not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, this is a case of compromise with this evil. John Morley said, Compromise is the most immoral word in the English language. And I surely would agree to that. The church in Corinth compromised themselves by compromising this evil. Now, there are certain things that need to be said about it. There was no need of proof. It was acknowledged. It was not a false rumor. It was not gossip. It was not hearsay. That is something that was established. And Paul would never have brought it up if it had been just a rumor. And it was not a questionable sin. It was a glaring sin that was actually recognized by the world outside as being sin. It was incest. Now, there are certain sins that are questionable today, and I don't think they should be brought out in the open and dealt with in the church at all. Let me give an illustration of this. A lady was converted, 
in the church that I served. And she called me one day, about three months after her conversion. And she was very discouraged. She says, I'm very disappointed. I'm very discouraged. She said, I've been a chain smoker. I've wanted to give up cigarettes. I've tried it. Three months, I've failed. I've now come to the place I hate them and I hate myself for doing. What should I do? Well, I made several suggestions. I said, look, it's a questionable sin, and it's one that you hate and you want to give it up, and I don't blame you. Your testimony is involved. Now, I want to say this to you. Continue to pray. And she told me about personal friends were praying for her. Ask them to continue to pray for you, and I'll pray for you. And I know this, God's going to give you the victory over this because you want it. And he's going to give you the victory. That's the first thing to do. And second thing, don't be discouraged. And the third thing, please don't tell it to the dear saints in the church. Because if you do, they'll crucify you. They will absolutely skin you alive and hang up your skin because today they consider it the worst sin in the world. Now I said, that's the way I think I'd handle it. In about another three months, she came in the church, and I could even look at her and tell something that happened. And afterwards, she couldn't wait to get down to tell me. She said, you know, from that day I talked to you down to the present, I haven't smoked a one. God's given me deliverance. Well, now that was fine. The questionable things, and I'm not sitting in judgment on anyone that's smoking. That's your business. It's not mine, I can assure you. I consider many things questionable sins today, and no question of immorality connected with it. And therefore, it should be handled differently. But this was not a questionable sin. This was something that even the Gentiles outside wouldn't even mention. It was such a horrible sin. And therefore... We're not dealing with a questionable. We're not saying whether this is right or wrong. I don't care what this present day says, that this living together without being married is sin in God's sight. And you can't look at it any other way than that. That is, as far as the Word of God is concerned, there are certain things that are questionable sins, but there are certain things that are not. This was not, as far as the Word of God is concerned. The third thing, the church did not need to establish the act as sin, nor to prove it. They didn't need to do that. And the fourth thing, the church tolerated, and they condoned it by doing nothing. They compromised. And that is the worst thing to do. And you can put it down that a pure church is a powerful church, and impure church is a paralyzed church. And you can look around you today and See whether that's true or not. Now, will you notice here, this was it, and Paul says this thing must be dealt with. Now, listen to him. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. This was a man living in adultery with his father's wife, apparently father married again. He was living with her. Gentiles didn't do that in that day. Gentiles do it today, but they didn't then. Uh, of course, we're more civilized today. Verse 4, "...in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
when ye are gathered together, and my Spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the fact that Paul is saying, actually, that you should meet together, and if this brother won't forsake this sin, then you should deliver him over to Satan. Now, that is a tremendous thing. Somebody says, you mean that? I didn't say it. Paul said it, friends, and he apparently meant it. And that's something the Word of God teaches. Did you know that Job was delivered over to Satan? Satan came to the Lord and said, I can't touch that man. You tell me how good he is, but I can't touch him. You just let me get to him. I'd show you whether he was really true to you or not, whether he really loved you or not. And the Lord says, I'll let you get to him. And Satan got to him. And that's a glorious comfort and thought today, is that Satan's not going to touch a child of God unless God permits it. And if he permits it, it's for a reason. And then you remember that the Lord Jesus said to Peter that Satan, he desires you, and we're turning you over to him. And Simon Peter was turned over by that man to deny his Lord that night. That was a dastardly deed. He's as bad as Judas Iscariot. But you see, he came back. He hated himself, and he hated the deed that he had done. And he was delivered to Satan. And it made the kind of a man that could preach a sermon on the day of Pentecost. And then, you remember, Paul says something quite interesting to Timothy in First Timothy, first chapter, verse 20. He says, "...of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, here were two professing Christians, and they were blaspheming. Paul says, I've delivered them over to Satan. And may I say to you today, and I recognize the danger of saying this, because there is a danger of our feelings, our emotions getting involved, and there's always a danger of fanaticism that some people are inclined to go into. But I believe that today that there are certain men, certain women, that are hurting the cause of Christ, maybe in your church. I think that you have a right to pray God to deliver them into the hands of Satan, that they might be dealt with so that they don't hurt and harm the body of Christ. Now, I've prayed that the Lord will deliver a certain men over to Satan. Let him work them over. He'll give them a good workout. And that'll either bring them to God or reveal whether they're genuine or not. I have my doubts whether they're genuine or not. And I want them to, if they are Christians and profess to be one, I want them to come out clear-cut and come out clean for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think we have a right to pray that prayer. You say, this is strong medicine. May I say to you, it's a very strong medicine. And for carnal Christians, believe me, this was extremely strong medicine. Paul says, I'm not there in body, but I'm there in spirit, and this is the way I'm voting. I vote and I pray that this fellow may be delivered into the hands of Satan. Now, will you notice what Paul says? Your glorying is not good. Know ye not? 
that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And do you know what the church in Corinth was doing? At the same time they were shutting their eyes to this, compromising by their very silence, not dealing with the sin that's in their own congregation. You know what they were doing? They were bragging about their missionaries. (laughs) Oh, they sent out missionaries. And they were boasting of the fact that they were true to the Bible. What hypocrites. And they were boasting of the fact that they were winning souls for Christ. Oh, that covers a multitude of sins for some folk today. Oh, my friend, may I say to you, they were glorying, and Paul says, your glorying is not good. Know ye that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And the leaven, my friend, is never the gospel It's always a principle of evil, as it is here and everywhere else. He says, verse 7, "...purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened." You get rid of the evil, because what does leaven do really to bread? You put it in dough. My mother used to put it in dough, and she'd put the biscuits and the rolls on the back of the stove, old wood cook stove, and then they'd start puffing up. And when they got up a certain height, she pushed them in the oven in a hurry. Why? Because she had to stop that. Because if that leavening process had gone on, they'd go out the ceiling, and they'd be corrupt, they'd be rotten. And if you don't deal with evil in the church, my friend, the thing will blow up one of these days, and you destroy the effectiveness of the church. And a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you're unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, he sacrificed for us. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed that. And here they were putting leaven in. That is evil. And they were those who talked about the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. Now, he says, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, sincerity never saved anyone. But if you are a child of God, you will be sincere. And the world today needs sincerity among believers and needs truth among believers. Paul says, let's have sincerity and truth in the church in Corinth. You see, they were in the midst of gross immorality, and they thought they could get by with this. And they were very insincere as they pretended that everything was all right. And they were pretending they were telling the truth and they were not telling the truth. Listen to him. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. And that city was filled with them, was given over to gross immorality. He says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I've written unto you not to keep company. If any man that's called a brother be a fornicator, a covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. Now Paul said, you permitted this man to come in to your fellowship, and you eat with him. You pat him on the back, accept him as one of your own, and he's living in sin. Now you condemn that when it's outside of the church. And Paul said, I've condemned it outside of the church. 
and this city of Corinth given over to immorality. A thousand priestesses up there on Acrocorinthus at the temple of Venus or Aphrodite. And they were nothing in the world but harlots. That's all in the world. They were prostitutes. And that city was given over to it. And this was done in the name of religion. Now, the church in Corinth thought they could drop down to the level of the world. Now, does the church think that it can drop down to the new morality today? Does the church think it can get by with it? The church today, my friend, has lost its power. And the church of God today, and I'm speaking now in most places, I thank God for the wonderful churches that are left, and they're standing out like beacon lights across this land. Bible churches that are standing for the Word. And I heard of a young preacher the other day. They brought in this hard rock into his church, and he took a stand. Thank God for him. And it meant he lost several hundred members that walked out. I thank God for a preacher like that, that has the intestinal fortitude. Most today are compromising and shutting their eyes and letting the world come in today. And the church has lost its power. An impure church is a paralyzed church. A pure church is a powerful church. And that's true for the individual also. Now, will you listen to Paul here again? He says, now he's in your midst and he's a brother. And you're just acting as if nothing happened. And he's speaking not only of a fornicator. He says, this ought to apply to the covetous too. What about the deacon that may have sticky fingers? That's got his hand on a lot of money. And the idolater and the one that's fooling with other religions. And I heard of a man that walked out of a church the other day. He was a leading officer in the church and joined a cult. I tell you, when you start seeing the little infection in your church, you better deal with it, friends, or it's going to corrupt and wreck your church because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now, Paul says, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. Paul says, I'm not judging people on the outside. It's not my business. But I am those inside the church. But them that are without God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, the question arises, how did things work out? Well, if you would turn over to 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 4, you'll find out that the church dealt with this. And when it does, everything works out. Verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrariwise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. This man came in deep repentance when Paul put it down on the line. And I think today that we need a great deal of courage, not compromise in the church, but courage that points this thing out and says, this is sin. And I think when it is, then the guilty fellows say, well, like David did, I'm the one that's guilty. I'm the one that did it. And by the way, this all was handled nicely by the Corinthian church. Why? Because Paul had the courage 
to write this kind of a letter. And you find him saying over in the seventh chapter, verse 12, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for this cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that I care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Paul says, I did this for the welfare of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, today, this flimsy, hypocritical attitude of, well, we don't want to air this. We don't want to cause trouble. We just want to sweep it under the rug. My friend, God can't bless it. God doesn't bless it. And if God did bless it, God would be a liar. And did you know something? God is no liar. He will judge What a tremendous lesson this is. Now, one of the great questions today, as we come to 1 Corinthians 6, we'll find the answer to it here. That is, we'll find God's answer to the question of, well, civil rights. And very candidly, this chapter is a little broader than that. That's a rather narrow way of looking at it, and we want to confine our remarks to the entire spectrum of the Christian in his relation to the state. And civil rights, actually, is only a segment of a much larger subject. The Christian today is told that he has a dual citizenship, and I think it's often misconstrued by outsiders as well as believers. Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, "...for our conversation is in heaven." And the word conversation here is polichema. You want the literal of it? Our politics is in heaven. (laughs) And my friend, that's one place they don't seem to be today. Our politics is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Now, that does not relieve the Christian of his responsibility to the state. The Christian has a responsibility toward each, that is, to God and to the state. Our Lord expressed it when the Rhodians, you remember, pressed on him the subject of taxation. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? He said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And we have a responsibility to the state and to God the things that are God. The Christian, I think, has a secular responsibility and a spiritual responsibility. Now, Paul defined the responsibility of the Christian to the state. He put down certain guidelines which cannot be misunderstood. Listen to him. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, thanksgiving be made for all men for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. We should, in a state, attempt that there be peace and that there be a law-abiding and that the authorities be recognized. Why? in order that we might get the gospel out. That's the reason Paul gives to Timothy here, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. And then we've already seen in Romans, the 13th chapter, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, 
There's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And we're told not to resist the power, and rulers are not a terror to evil work. In other words, although the Roman government was tyrannical, they were a bunch of tyrants, most of the emperors were, and many of them became persecutors of the church. And it is true that in the Roman government that if you opposed it, you were in real trouble because they could always put their hand on you and arrest you, and there's no place you could flee to. You could never escape them, so that it was a real dictatorship. But even in that, there was a freedom to preach the Word of God, and that should be the thing the Christians should have in mind, by the way. Now, we're told in Genesis 9, 6, we're given there the fact that the state was ordained of God. And as far as I can tell, that's never been changed. And God put down a principle there, "...whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man." In other words, to maintain the dignity and respect for man, for humanity, why capital punishment must be used. And I have in my possession, it came in the mail today to me from a dear lady. She's apparently a very sweet lady, but very soft-hearted. And she feels like, oh, I'm so terrible because I believe in capital punishment, that Jesus wouldn't do that. And she wants to know whether I'd be willing to pull the switch in the electric chair. And that very candidly, I wouldn't. That's not my job. I've been called to do something else. But I want to say this. If she's going to be safe in her home, there better be somebody willing to pull that electric switch, my friend. We are in a time of lawlessness. And today, the reason is we've had soft-hearted judges, and I'm afraid some of them have been soft-headed as well. Now, the church and state were to be kept separate. The church was not to dominate the state, not to dictate to it, and the state was not to control the church or to take the place of God. In a secular society, secularism always takes the place of God. That's modern idolatry today. We find that people have put secularism in the place of God. And we find that there's a parody, and then they come out each week on the 23rd Psalm. Somebody sent me one, science is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we find the church today getting involved in all of this today. And yet, right now, even some of the liberals, I have a quotation from one. He says, to rebel against human law in the name of a higher law can be creative, saving the world from stagnation. But to disobey the law can also be anarchic and destructive, for too easily can men convince themselves that their opinions are those of God. And that's the opinion, I think, of a great many today, even of our statesmen. They think they speak in the place of God. Now, with that kind of a background, I think we're prepared now to look at this tremendous passage here. Will you listen to Paul in the sixth chapter? He says, "...dare any of you," speaking out of the Corinthians, "...having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints." Now, this may seem to some of you a very strange statement, but I think it needs to be understood. He didn't say you're not to go to law. 
that's the only way you can deal with an unsaved man that's breaking the law, and especially in reference to you, which causes you a great loss. And here it means don't go to law against another. And the word here means another the same kind. This means Christian against Christian. Now, this is something that the church and believers today entirely ignore. The differences between believers should not be taken into a secular court. They should be settled by believers. Now, when I came here to Southern California and I was a pastor, I was rather amazed. One day a man came in rather excited, and he wanted to bring a charge against an officer of the church. In a business deal, he claimed he'd beat him out of a sum of money. And he might have, I don't know, the pros and cons of it at all. The man never let me know, really. And the thing was that he said, now he did this, and I want you to bring him up before the board and make him settle with me. And I said, well, I'll tell you, I think you're approaching it the right way. Now I said, I want you to come before the board now and make your charges. Oh, he said, I've told you about them, and that's all that's necessary. Oh, I said, no, I don't know whether it's true or not. They would ask me, and they'd want to refer it to you, so you'd be present. Oh, no, he'd not do that, you see. And then I asked him this question. I said, would you be willing to accept the verdict of the board? Well, he says, it's owing to how they decided it. He says, if they decided in my favor, I would accept it. Then I said, I understand if they decided against you, you would not accept Oh, no, he said, I wouldn't. Well, I said, you can forget it as far as I'm concerned for the very simple reason you're not even in a position to turn it over to believers. Now, church fights should not be aired in state courts before unbelievers. Individual differences should be adjudicated by believers. And I think that's the reason today a divorce of two Christians It's bad enough, but to go before a secular court and to air it before unbelievers, I think, is a pretty serious thing. And that's one reason today that when they can't get along to believers and there's no way of reconciling them, I advise always legal separation, not a court trial at all. Now, why should a believer let his brethren be his judges and not take it to the unsaved world? There are a great many today will take it to the unsaved world and not let believers handle it. Now, this, again, has only to do with another believer. It's not to forbid him from going to court against an unbeliever. Now, Paul here gives a threefold reason for this, of the capability of the believer. Notice it, verse Two, he says, do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world, and that the world shall be judged by you? Are ye unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? Now, you are a believer. Well, you're going to have part with the Lord Jesus in ruling this earth someday. This is not the great white throne we're talking about, by the way. The lost go there before Christ and rushing toward it today. But we need to understand that it is in the adjudication of the affairs of this world down through eternity, I think. And Paul said to a young preacher, Timothy, he said to him, 
if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And I think that's what it means. We pass judgment on affairs in this world. Now, Paul moves on here in verse 3, and he's got a series of know ye not. I've mentioned that before when Paul says, know ye not, to the brethren, you can put it down, the brethren do not know. It's just this nice, polite way of saying they're ignorant, and they are. Know ye not, he says, that we shall judge angels, how much more things that pertain to this life. Now, Paul breaks through here into another area, which opens a great vista of truth. And if you will not let anybody know what I'm going to say right now, and I hope you won't talk it out, because just between me and you, and that is this, I must confess to you, I do not understand what that means. I cannot comprehend it. All I know is man was made a little lower than the angels. And through redemption, man is to be lifted into a place of fellowship with God above the angels. And God permitted man to fall, and he never would have permitted it if it wouldn't work out for good. And it will bring man into a higher position. Because you see, that old bromide's not true that says the bird with the broken wing never flies so high again. He flies higher. We're going to be above angels, and we're going to judge them. I have charge of it. I don't understand that. And please, let's not let that out, because there are some people who think I understand that. Now, we are told another reason here, and I'm going to have to drop down to verse 9 to pick that up, because it's another one of these, Know ye not. Three times here, Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Will you listen to me now very carefully? This is important. No secular judge or jury are equipped to make spiritual decisions. They do not comprehend spiritual principles. And that's the reason so many of these court cases that pertain to churches and Christians just go haywire the minute it hits the legal mills today. Why? Because there's a secular judge sitting up there. He has no spiritual comprehension. He knows all about those law books, but he knows nothing about spiritual decisions, and he has no spiritual discernment. And today, I'll be very candid with you, it'd be with fear and trembling, that I would go into court and have a secular judge handle me or my property, because I don't think that the secular judge is capable of doing it. And I don't think a jury, a secular jury today, I looked at the jury that was shown on television of a trial here in Southern California. I said to my wife, I said, I thank God my life is not in the hands of that twelve that I see there. And some of them had made statements, the trial was over. And I give you my word, friends, some of the things these folks said reveal that, well, they just weren't capable of doing that sort of thing. Now, that's what we have here, and there's a reasonable basis for it. And believers, though, don't seem to trust other believers today like they should. 
Now, let me move on down and come back because I jumped down. I'll go back to verse 5. He says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one, that shall be able to judge between his brethren? Now, may I also add this hurriedly. There are some of the saints I do not want to appear before either. I'm delighted that I'm not going to have to stand before some of the saints I know today. Their little jingle, it goes something like this. To dwell above with saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to stay below with the saints I know, that's another story. I don't want some of them I know judging me, friends. Well, some of them do. I can't help that. And I think they've missed it. Now, I wouldn't want to appear before all the saints. But Paul is saying here, I say it to your shame. Isn't there a wise man among you? When you go to a secular court, you send why none of the saints are capable. Well, I think there are. I know some dear brethren in the Lord. I'd be willing to risk my life in their hands. I'm confident that that would be a just decision. Now, why does the Christian have a capability to judge? And Paul will deal with that. Let me drop down now to verse 11. And such were some of you, but you're washed, but you're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You've been washed. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, saved us and by the washing of regeneration. Born again, watch, and the mercy of God is reached down, you see, and touched us. And the very interesting thing is that we ought then to know how to extend mercy. We could be merciful. David had been washed, but God had forgiven him, but he wasn't about to forgive Absalom 100%. And today we need to recognize that There are many wonderful believers who've been washed, and we could trust ourselves to them. Then he says sanctified. Now, sanctification here in Corinthians is two kinds. They're sanctified positionally. That's when we're in Christ. That means Christ is on our side, all believers in Christ. And it means that one of my brothers is judging me, and I'm willing to trust myself should be to my brother. A little girl is carrying a heavy baby down the street. And a man saw her and he said, little girl, isn't that baby too heavy for you? Oh, no, she said, he's my brother. (laughs) Makes a lot of difference. He's not too heavy. And I'd be willing for one of my brethren. I'm in Christ. He's in Christ. We're brothers. Now, the third thing, we've been justified. Now, his sins are already forgiven as mine are. He's been declared righteous just as I've been. And he's been cleared before the throne of God. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, that man that knows about that, I feel like he could handle my case better than anyone else. Now, will you notice verse 12? He says, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Now, There are a lot of things that a believer can do, but they're not expedient to do. And I could mention many of them. Paul mentions one here, meats for the belly, belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. 
Now, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not, here we go again with that, know ye not, that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. And may I say, somebody should get through to these young folks today that are living together without being married. A couple came to me, and they wanted to talk about going into Christian service. They weren't even married, but they were living together. I told them, you go get married. They said, why? I said, because God commands it. That's the way God wants it. And I said, until you're willing to do that, you can't serve him. Now, what? He says, know ye not? And he which is joined to a harlot's one body. For two saith, he shall be one flesh. But he that's joined unto the Lord's one spirit. Flee fornication. You can't live in immorality, friends, and serve Christ. Now, are there men attempting uh, to do that today? And unfortunately, they're acceptable. But God doesn't accept them. Now, he says, what know ye not? Here we go again with that that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. Now we come to a remarkable statement and a remarkable truth that a great many believers have not accepted today. Paul's going to discuss sex, by the way. And somebody says he was a bachelor. No, he wasn't. He was married. 